Hello and welcome to the Johnny Fallon podcast election series. This week we are looking at the 1989 election and this series follows elections all the way from 1977 through to our most recent election in 2020 where we are looking at all of the major parties all of the biggest events and all of the things that have helped to shape and drive irish politics over recent decades and find through the prism of these elections the story of what has made us the economy and society that we now find before us today 1989 election was a particularly interesting one in that it changed in the aftermath of that election how parties approached government formation in particular. So sit back, relax and have a little journey with me over the next while as we travel back to that time and look at what led to an election in 1989 and what the outcome meant for the country. At the end of our last podcast, we uh, left the Ireland in 1987 at a time when Fianna Fáil had just returned to government uh, and formed a minority government uh, under the leadership of Charles Hahi. Um, now, it's important to say here that these were these were Ireland in the 1980s it was a time when. I suppose politics and people were, were, you know, they were worried because nobody knew quite what you were going to get sometimes. We'd seen this in the early 80s. When you've listened to, to some of the other podcasts, you'll have seen the problems here of we're trying to deal with major, major economic issues. Nobody has dealt with them for a, a huge amount of time. Um, Fianna Fáil in the early 80s when it had gone into government had shown itself to be particularly unwilling uh, to face any kind of electoral damage from doing what was necessary for the economy. So at this point you had, uh, as, we, as we saw in the last podcast, just to quickly summarise, a problem where Fine Gael and Labour had come in, a uh, first stable government in a while, but had failed pretty conclusively to deal with the economic issues either, largely because they too had electoral issues and the coalition wasn't strong enough in terms of what Labour needed and what they were being forced into by Fine Gael and then Fine Gael needing to finally, having having wasted and, and having seen successive governments waste opportunities, Fine Gael was looking at uh, cutting spending but couldn't get agreement to do that uh, and had gone to the country in 87 uh, on a series of, of very heavy cuts that they were proposing um, that Labour couldn't agree with. And of course, it had led to Fianna Fáil returning to power. Now the question is, what's Hahi going to do in particular? Because right now, in Fianna Fáil, Hahi is the party, or that's certainly the perception of it, because he can dominate everything that this party has done. Uh, in in the last uh, guts of a decade here he has he has completely dominated uh, the opinion the policy even when other people disagree with it they're silenced and they're pushed to one side and Hahi gets his way Hahi is now back and people are probably wondering what are they going to get from this government now 
So it's important just to, to, to flick back and, and look at how this government then decides to perform and what it is that they, 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 they do in the approach to government. I suppose one thing that's important to say here, because there can be a lot of, of, of you know, eulogising of, of, of these periods and politicians who, and, you know, across the board, when you look back, they were all faced with a terrible problem, largely of Irish politics own making, if not necessarily this particular generation but ever since the early 70s as we've 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 mentioned on the previous podcast this this economic crisis was just being put off and put off and put off and it could have been dealt with much earlier and then you wouldn't have had you could have had that mix of tax increases along with uh, spending but what they've done is they've pumped up taxes so high they've crippled the economy and they've never really attempted to deal with the spending side of things now, they were kind of out of options uh, in, in, at, at this stage. And, and Fine Gael and Labour's government had been curtailed by the fact that they were out of so many options uh, in, in the, that period from 82 to 87. So there wasn't a huge amount Fianna Fáil could really do. It wasn't like a time you could just waltz back in. But something is changed in Fianna Fáil that is important in understanding this period and this particular election uh, because Hahi has returned to power but in some ways he's not the same man he's not the same guy that perhaps people saw before and a large part of that is it's it's been and I've always felt this with Hahi there was a chastening experience in that long period in opposition something he didn't expect um and he's 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 found it difficult when he comes back uh, in this. He's managed to get a minority government together. But the problem for Hahi immediately was, you know, he was almost facing a leadership challenge straight away by failing to get that overall majority. He was his his power has been weakened within the party. So Hahi knows he's got this this he's no longer uh, maybe as strong as he was. Some of the people he's bringing into cabinet now at this point, it's not even really that he has huge options because some really powerful figures have arrived on the scene politically and they're now making a name for themselves. In particular, people like Albert Reynolds and one Ray McSharry. And McSharry is a loyal lieutenant of, of Hahi's at this period. He has stood by him. He has helped him uh, to uh, tame power. He's helped him to maintain his position in power. He's one of the strongest backroom people uh, in, in organising in the party too. And McSharry is now appointed Minister for Finance. Um, but McSharry's a different beast. He's a big beast. And he's probably the one person how he around that table knows he's not going to push this guy around anyway. So you see a different approach immediately from Hahi, where as opposed to previous times, he now becomes a little bit more hands-off. He becomes less of the the mafia-type leader, where these are just my lieutenants who do what I tell them, and more kind of, okay, these are ministers and serious people in their own right, I appoint them, and then I just oversee and try to lead and shape the, the strategic vision of it, but they get on with the actual work. And that, in particular is necessary in finance because McSharry's a different beast to uh, what has gone before here. And he is determined that he is going to deal with the issues. And for the first time, 
in this period, what you're going to see from 87 to 89 is important. It's important in, in Irish economic history and it's important in understanding the elections uh, to this point because fantastic promises have been made. And Fianna Fáil have just come out of an election in 87 where they've made those fantastic promises. However, when we look back at Irish history, this is the period where finally stuff gets done on the economy and we're going to move away from what has been uh you know nearly 20 years of avoiding uh the problem to in a very short space of time saying look face up to it and deal with it um and that's largely down to the fact that McSharry is so determined uh, on it one of the the good accounts on this actually comes from uh, Noel Whelan in, in uh, his, his writings uh, on this. Uh, I'm just going to quote here. Quote, the situation that confronted McSharry and the country was a bleak one. He has recalled the depressing scenario that confronted him on his first day in Merrion Street. At the time, the efforts of the outgoing coalition to stop the debt GMP ratio rising have met with little success. The national debt had soared to £22 billion during the Fine Gael and Labour's four-year term in office. When the coalition finally broke up in January 87, it left the public finances in a far worse state than it had found them. The debt mountain I faced had nearly doubled in size since my earlier brief tenure as Minister for Finance in 82. The budgetary arithmetic was chilling. By 1986, one in every £4 of current spending represented the interest owing on past debt. But since those repayments had to be Financed from tax revenue, one third of all taxes were required simply to pay those annual debt charges. In other words, some four out of every five pounds raised in income tax were needed to pay the interest from the outstanding national debt. Since servicing the debt had a prior claim on current spending, it meant higher interest payments also required higher taxes to finance them. The result was less money available to pay for day-to-day -day services in areas like health, education and welfare. Unquote. I mean, that's that's the colossal size of, of the problem. I mean, four out of every five pounds here is going to, to servicing debts. Uh, they've let this and, and you'll have seen from the, the previous podcast, there was a lot of messing by political leaders and, and, and Fianna Fáil's 77 election where we started that tried this. Oh, we're just going to pump prime the economy. Made all this stuff crazy, crazy figures. Um. And and then nobody dealt with us even in 81 and in 82. And McSherry was briefly finance minister, but that was a period, that was that government where he held sway and got his way on by-elections and got his way on, on, on pushing things out and not wanting to damage the party's electoral prospects. So this was massive. Um, the, the damage that was being done to the economy was huge. They ignored the problem for so long and now they were left with uh, this this absolutely huge uh, mountain that they had to climb. Uh, and again, going back to uh, Noel Whelan, he says, McSharry recognised that the country's level of borrowing was unsustainable and the only way to begin to rectify this was to cut spending. Such an approach would severely affect public services, but McSharry felt there was no other option. He was backed strongly by Hahi, who on the 17th of May 1987 wrote to all government departments asking them to give priority to identifying the specific programmes and expenditures for further cuts now if we want to get results for the remainder of 87 and 88. 
Fianna Fáil, on whose manifesto had been vague to the point of vacuous on cuts, now in government embraced the cuts agenda as the only way to solve the crisis in the national finances, unquote. So that's the crucial point here. Fianna Fáil had, had been, as Noel Whedon says, they were, they, were, they were vacuous when it comes to cuts. They, they, they avoided this completely in the, the election. We're not going to talk about cuts. We don't want to, people don't like the idea of cuts. We're certainly not promising cuts because Fine Gael, that's what they're weak on. And uh, we have to get back into power. We've got to get a solid majority. Whereas Charlie's opportunism of uh, opposition has got us back in. But now they're faced with this problem, and McCreevy, or, or, or McSharry, uh, sorry, is the, the guy at the helm now, and McSharry's powerful enough to say, no, we are doing the cuts, and that's, ha- that's got to happen. Now, Hahi possibly realises too, at this stage, that the game is up uh, as when it comes to anything to do with the, the economy now. You, trying to play around the edges with it's not going to work, and this perhaps has learned some lessons about trying to you know be extra smart and put in a stroke and do some genius move that's going to fix it all it's not you're going to have to deal with the economy uh, and that's what they're faced with now McSharry has the opportunity to do this in his first budget uh, and of course he uh, pretty much Let's fly uh, on that budget. Uh, again, I'll let Noel Whelan pick up the, the account of it. Uh, quote, It was an extremely severe budget. In it, McSharry set the current deficit at a rate even lower than Fine Gael had proposed. Tax bans were not indexed against inflation. Public service pay was frozen and recruitment ban was maintained. Furthermore, the government introduced a new 35% withholding tax on professional fees. In short, what Fianna Fáil had done was to adopt Fine Gael's policy of fiscal rectitude and then add some more. Michael Noonan, the new Fine Gael spokesperson on finance, pointed out Fianna Fáil's recent conversion. I have, always, I, I have great pleasure today in welcoming Fianna Fáil's acceptance of the Fine Gael analysis of the problem and of the targets which we have set down. This is grand larceny of our policy as put before the electorate. Fine Gael supported McSharry's budget and indeed was left little choice given that it, had very much, it was very much along the lines of the draft budget it had produced in January 87. This, however, only mildly alleviated the concerns in Fianna Fáil about having to deal with such a disastrous economic situation while in a minority government. With the first budget of the new uh, government completed, McSharry recalled, quote from McSharry here, the only question was how the minority government might fare later and the second and further instalments of tougher austerity measures had to be delivered. Would Fine Gael continue to underwrite the government where it mattered most in the division lobbies in the Dáil? The government knew, and all ministers readily accepted, that the only way to proceed was to turn our parliamentary weakness into political strength. This meant refusing to do deals with any party or with independents in return for their voting support. In that sense, the fate of the government rested in the hands of the opposition. For my part, I felt a bit like a high-wire artist performing without the reassurance of a safety net underneath. Unquote. So, Fianna Fáil, uh, Ray McSharry has introduced this really, really tough. Because what he's decided to do is not only take Fine Gael's policies, but he is going further. He is saying, no, no, we're really dealing with this. Because even the Fine Gael cuts that were even proposed weren't good enough. This is the stuff we've got to get. And we're going... And, and these guys are in a minority government. 
So you can imagine if you're a backbencher, you're probably cacking yourself right now thinking, how am I going to go and hold on to my seat? I've just campaigned that we wouldn't cut things. Now we're cutting public service. We're freezing public pay. We're, we're, we're sucking the life out of the economy. I thought we were going to go to, you know, boom and bloom. Um, and instead, we're absolutely savaging um, the, the public uh, services and we're savaging pay. And, and this is, you know, it's, it's such a turnaround. But it is exactly what the economy needs by this point in time. Now, you've heard there Michael Noonan talking about, you know, the, the acceptance of the uh, Fianna Fáil accepting their position and accepting the, the Fine Gael position uh, in terms of policy. And of course they were. And that's the other interesting thing, because we need to look a little bit at what happened in Fine Gael at this point, too, because that's part of the story of 1989, because a lot's changed. As you remember, Gareth Fitzgerald is the outgoing leader and Gareth Fitzgerald loses um, that election and, of course, decides to depart the scene then as leader of Fine Gael. So Fine Gael are left looking for a new leader um and and of course they have they've lots of talent but it, it, one of the big difficulties for them is that Fitzgerald has been such a driving force within Fine Gael. he hasn't just been the guy you know as, as a leader who's come in and, and kept the party going in its traditional sense Fitzgerald has been this modernizing force on Fine Gael. he has taken them from that party that of the Cosgraves uh very pious, strongly Catholic, if you like, party, conservative, into something that's right-wing politically, but um, socially a reforming party. And he's had such a massive impact on it. It's very difficult to imagine just how hard this was for Fine Gael in trying to adjust to a new era at this time and, and put in a new leader. And of course, there are options. There was Peter Barry was the favourite. Uh, he was a TD in, in Cork, frontbencher, senior minister. This is a guy who has all of the attributes to become traditional Fine Gael leader, if you know, um, and, and recognisable, Barry's tea brand. And, and, and remember that, you know, he was, he was a, 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 seen as one of the powerful political figures. And as, as you know, I grew up in, in a Fianna Fáil household and because of Peter Barry, uh, who is, of course, Barry's tea uh, in, in, in Cork, um, you know, you only were household, you only ever drank lion's tea. Uh, to have Barry's tea in the house was an outrage. Uh, and I learned that as a kid because I would see Peter Barry on the telly talking in this, you know, strong, sombre tones. But absolutely, he exuded Fine Gael and Fine Gaelness, if you like, um, in in uh, everything that, that he did. And, and therefore, for those of us who are on the other side, you could never have any truck with that. Um, and therefore, you know, Barry's tea was not something that came into the house. Uh, and it's funny how Ireland has these little things that are so ingrained in our politics and, and so ingrained in how we approach things uh, because uh, that is how people define themselves in it. But Peter Barry was, uh, if you like, maybe expected to become leader. But that 
changed uh, in, in terms of, because Fine Gael has a lot of, of young uh, folk within the party now too, up and coming TDs looking for their chance. One of them is Ivan Yates and there's a great account uh, given in Katie uh, Hannan's book, The Naked Politician, uh, where she talks to Ivan Yates and he, he outlines first of all how, how, you know, what had happened that, that uh, in their backing of Dukes and then in the aftermath of that what happened and how he got his first break and it's a very interesting uh, look at, at politics and uh, what happens in politics particularly uh, in terms of leaders and returning the favors you'll have seen in the previous episodes how he rewarded people uh, who backed him but uh, just to quote anyway give you this this story because i think it's 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 so um gives, gives a great insight into the irish political ways uh, at this time uh quote alan jukes game mitchell alan shatter and ivan yates were all from the class of 81 after six years and four elections, they felt they'd served their time on the backbenches. When Garrett had run his race, the party's old guard moved to install Peter Barry, the Cork Merchant Prince, in his place. The hungry young Turks saw a chance to mount a coup, and in an extraordinary turnabout, they succeeded in getting Alan Duke's elected leader. I went off to a rugby international that Saturday afternoon, feeling that I had pulled off a mighty stroke. We had defeated all the power base in the party that was in cabinet. So I went to the Rugby International thinking, game on. And it wasn't, says Ivan Yates. Unbelievably, Jukes didn't put any of us on the front bench. He totally missed the point. He went and reappointed all the others. These three people who had done everything to get him elected. I couldn't believe it. I put it down to political naivety on his part. I don't know what he thought, but he thought wrong anyway. No sooner had he made the appointments than he realised that I wasn't too happy and that maybe this wasn't in his best interests. So he came to me and proposed I go for the chairmanship of the party. It was the only contest I was ever beaten in. All the old guard, the Barry people, they had a knife in me. I was completely set up. I didn't want to be chairman of the party. Yates bided his time until Duke started to flounder. Then, out of the clear blue sky, I let him have an exorcist. I announced that Fine Gael should merge with the PDs. I got great publicity for it, as it happened, in a complete freak of coincidence, the very same day Austin DC resigned. Suddenly, Jukes was dealing with a crisis in Fine Gael. Jukes summoned him. He said, what the fuck are you doing? I was very bullshy about it. He was saying, this was a matter for the leader. I was saying, I'm just a humble backbencher. Basically, I was letting him know that I felt he had no authority over me. It worked. Within three months, he got rid of half the front bench and did a complete reshuffle, and I was made spokesman on health, which was my first big break. Unquote. Now, you'll have seen uh, how this works in politics and parties. It is not easy to become a party leader. Alan Jukes is um, a young up-and-coming minister he's he's popular but uh he is at this point looking overcome uh peter barry there's a massive change what what way is finagail going to go here because they've lost the leader who was so 
important in shaping and framing their policies and their 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 ideas and you got these these group of young turks these guys saying look we don't want peter barry in there you know that's not going to be that's going to go back to the more traditional style of finagail maybe and it's not going to give opportunities for us it's going to allow the old cabinet to continue so what always happens in political leadership contests backbenchers look for the person who's going to give them a break the cabinet or or the front bench, if you like, tend to hold up around their own person uh, and they don't like a lot of change or radical change. So because they know somebody's going to lose out and they're going to want to put in some of these backbenchers. So that's how it works. And that's what you expect. The people get you in. Great. You reward them by ensuring that, that some of them at least go in and cabinet posts and they expect that. What Jukes does here is to try and say, well, look, keep the party together, keep the old front bench together, I'm leader now, thanks for that, guys, and uh, yeah, uh, we just continue on as normal. He lets down the people who have actually helped him, and very quickly, he's got, he learns that lesson, you can see what that uh, does with Ivan Yates, and it happens with others, and you get this problem, there is a crisis with Infinagrail. and that's bound to happen. Jukes is a new leader, and he's struggling to get a grip now on Finnegrail. And Fianna Fáil are across the way feeling this is how he's time to shine. You know, go be the great leader, CJH. Leave McSherry, do the finances. We were on the verge of that overall majority. We're going to get it, but we're going to get it by doing the right thing on the economy now. And Fianna Fáil are really struggling here because they've got a new leader who now has to define it and, and, and Jukes is trying to keep it together so he's trying to keep the old cabinet but he's trying to keep the backbenchers happy and and this is a, a, a huge uh, task ahead of him uh, just trying to mould all of this just trying to bring it together so he decides look uh, you know, I, I will have a reshuffle after a while and he gets to bring in and does reward some of them. He does need to refresh this. He does need to bring put his own mark on it. But he is looking across the way thinking, Fianna Fáil are in a really strong position compared to us right now. And that's part of the struggle. Fianna Fáil, as he sees it, are, are organisationally sound. They've, they've come through things. They've been preparing to get in here. And you know what? Now that they've got in, they're now kind of stealing Fine Gael's clothes because... Finnegrail was the party that said, well, at least we're not going to do something stupid on the economy. Uh, we're trying at least. Yes, you know, you saw there from Ray McSherry's piece now, the Fianna Fáil view of Finnegrail uh, uh, Labour government, which was they had doubled the national debt in, in those four years. This was not a government that was tackling the economy. The finances were actually in a worse state than they had been in the early 80s. So they, they effectively had done nothing. And, and it goes back to that thing of talking a good game. Fiona Fall had at times talked up a good game. Ha, he had been great at talking up a good game, but he didn't deliver. And every time he went out, he was saying, well, I was about to. Uh, Fine Gael are in the same thing here. They had had uh, four years of government. They had not dealt. They had made the financial problems worse. Uh, and they were saying, but we are going to implement these cuts. And if it hadn't been for the Labour Party, we'd have done a better job. Um, in its ringing hollow. And, and Alan Jukes knows that. And therefore, he knows the threat of Fianna Fáil actually getting on with these cuts. That if Fianna Fáil manages to do this and manages to get the media and commentators supporting them, it, it would be crazy for Fine Gael to take opportunism now. They can't really say, well, we oppose the cuts that we've just fought an election on saying that we're we're going to 
back uh, that they were some of our cuts. The fact that Fianna Fáil were going further than we would, maybe you could do that, but that's going to ring hollow too. And now it's going to look like Fianna Fáil have stolen our clothes completely. They're now the, 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 the party of good, financially responsible government. So how the hell does Fine Gael survive in this? And remember that they've just come out of an election where the PDs have got 14 seats and they're, they're, they're storming away and looking like the PDs have, have, have also st- stolen Fine Gael's clothes. So Fine Gael are under real threat here. Uh, and it's a really difficult time. And Dukes has to be very mindful of that no matter what he does in, in this period. Because for Dukes... It's one of these situations where unless he manages to see Fine Gael, at least through the early stages of this, they could get wiped out in an election and that's what he wants to avoid. So in trying to avoid that, Jukes has a strategy, a new and unique strategy, he believes, to actually deal with the problem. Because the problem's twofold, protect Fine Gael, and then at the other side, well, we've arrived at a point where Fianna Fáil are doing stuff on the economy that we kind of have to back because it's stuff we've said should be done. And this is where we find the birth of what became known as the Tala strategy. Um, and, and I'll let uh, Noel Whelan again just pick up this, this point here. Uh, he says, quote, Dukes had been Minister for Finance for most of Gareth Fitzgerald's government and was intimately acquainted with how serious the crisis in the public finances was. There was no doubt that in running with the Tala strategy, he was motivated by the interests of the country and the need for drastic action if Ireland was to be put back on an even financial keel. But there was also the element of political calculation. Fine Gael needed to renew itself after a difficult period in government and a poor election. Jukes also needed to play himself in as the new leader. He did not need an election. And in a sense, the Tala strategy bought him time. Unquote. So, Jukes reckons here, look, and, and, and we also have to be fair to Jukes because he's, he's incredibly important in this period. He is buying himself political time. He's buying himself time to become leader and he's buying Fine Gael time to adjust. However, he is also doing that out of a sense of, this is a guy who's known, he's seen it. He was one of the great critics of uh, the government with Labour in, when he was sitting around that table. He was one of the ones Labour really struggled to get along with because, look, Jukes is looking at this and he's saying that there, there is nothing else you can do here. You know, these cuts have to happen. He fully agrees with the cuts. And he does believe passionately that that is the only route for the country and that this has to be done in the national interest. So, Jukes decides um, on this Tala strategy, and it is most definitely, and he deserves huge credit for it, because while there may have been a political calculation backing it, it was also born out of the fact that there was no opportunism on Jukes' part to say, well, I'll do what Fianna Fáil are doing, just doing it opposite, where I go completely back on what I said in government and now be something different in, in opposition. Um, he's saying, no, we stick to a firm line. That's what will help the country, and the Tala strategy is vital in this period in terms of getting stuff through the house that will allow for a government uh, to actually tackle the problem. Now, it was interesting because Gareth Fitzgerald at this time talks about how, how Fianna Fáil, and he was very critical of Fianna Fáil uh, in some degrees on it, uh, and Gareth Fitzgerald said, quote, 
there seemed to be two Fianna Fáil parties, Fianna Fáil in opposition and Fianna Fáil in government, and any resemblance between them has become totally coincidental. In fact, not only coincidental, but almost unfindable at this stage. Unquote. And that's Gareth Fitzgerald saying, look, you Fianna Fáil in opposition, you Fianna Fáil in government, they're completely different parties. One will go in and do one thing, and 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 I, it, there's a sense of that. That's true, um, because certainly on the evidence of what they've gone and campaigned on, they're doing something completely different now. But, um, there is that sense that it is finally happening for the government, and something is being done that maybe is, the correct thing for the country, uh, for a change, which, many people, uh, certainly felt at that point, haven't been done before. Uh, hadn't have been left uh, let go for too long now what begins to happen of course is is uh, you know the 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 idea of the cuts on the country um, again Noel Whelan here says quote McSharry took to the job of cutting public expenditure with relish so much so that he became known as Mac the Knife his determination to get the public finances under control was also aided by the emergence of social partnership. Maksharri, Hahi and Bertie Ahern, the new Minister for Labour, were the main architects in bringing about this new consensus-driven approach, which saw the government, trade unions and employers' groups work together on issues as such as pay and the economic model the country would follow to move beyond the crisis. Unquote. Now that's the birth of something that becomes absolutely vital in this period too. So you get this, McSharry goes in and he says, we're going to cut, cutting everything. Um, and, and that's the first real attempt to do that properly, if you like, within, within government. Now they're going to, on the other side, say, but we need agreement from the trade unions because we can't have the strikes. We have to, we have to halt uh, all of these strikes that are, are, are happening. You know, uh, public pay has to be agreed. So we have to have some kind of plan uh, that's going to deal with, with uh, allowing the country forward between unions, public sector, public service. And that becomes um, this agreement uh, that they, they reach. And it's, a, again, a really important one for the country. Now, one of the people who, who's emerging here, uh, and you heard his name there, is Bertie Ahern. And it's important at this point that we introduce that because this is when he finally comes on the scene. We've had mentions of him here and there before, but in this moment, he comes on the scene as Minister for Labour and he does have a very unique talent, which in particular is dealing with uh, trade issues, labour issues, um, and his, an ability to sit down and work negotiations. Very different in style to some of the other people around him. Reynolds um, is a, a deal maker, brinkmanship, you know, he puts it in. Ahern is brilliant at uh, achieving consensus, finding a compromise, uh, working things through and getting people to come that maybe not everybody's thrilled with it, but they at least have a deal uh, that they can work with. Um, and that, that allows him to, to come to the fore, in particular with social partnership, because that's one of the things that Fianna Fáil are going to, to become known for in the future. Uh, and again, going to, to just quote here on this from Noel Whelan. Uh, quote, the programme for national recovery was published in October 87 and it brought in its train wage restraint and industrial peace. The impact of the advent of partnership combined, 
combined with McSharry's dogged approach to rectifying the public finances, quickly began to pay dividends. Bertie Ahern observed, The results were almost immediate. The national debt peaked that year and the new partnership agreement with strong trade union support undoubtedly facilitated the difficult political and financial decisions made to put the economy back on track. Public expenditure and borrowing were cut dramatically. Confidence in our economy began to return and a rapid fall in interest rates followed. A sign of its success was that initially zero growth was forecast for 1987. In fact, almost 5% was achieved. Unquote. Now, the reason that's important um, is because they manage it, it, it. There's probably a huge amount of fatigue, you can imagine, with the economic problems that have beset Ireland. And trade unions, everybody, they all want to get together and they do want to actually deal with the problem. And the cuts are harsh, they're savage in some ways, um, but people are recognizing a need to do something. Uh, and to deal with the problem. So they finally get round to it. And you know what? After all the years, after all the budgets, all the elections we've already covered to this point, it's amazing to come to that point. Zero growth forecast for 1987 and 5% is achieved. When they finally all get down to it, when we get a TALA strategy, when we get a partnership agreement, when we stop all the bickering and the fighting and we push through some tackling of spending and accepting that this just has to happen for a short period, the economy begins to react almost immediately. And you think, oh, if only somebody had been in a position to do all of this 10 years earlier. Um, but instead they 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 blew so much in that intervening decade but now they are beginning to see the benefits of it and they are beginning to see so much come through here that that vindicates the policies taken by all of the major parties so with the economy finally uh showing those signs of life things are starting to look up and and i suppose what's really difficult for um Fine Gael, uh, at this point as they look across is they needed the time and, and how he has calculated that Dukes would not be willing to bring down the government because Fine Gael aren't really in a position to fight an election. Uh, at the same time, uh, Dukes is, is hoping there's going to be a dividend here as there should be because they have taken an incredibly responsible role and they have decided to back the, the, the economy and all of this has brought about this big dividend and Ireland is finally, finally beginning to move and it is moving and the economy is is really stretching out now. Stephen Collins uh, often says in, in an, a, a, a number of articles and uh, in his book The Power Game mentions, you know, this was probably the peak of Hahi's time. This was, this was when Hahi, you know, probably showed his best as leader. In fact, Mary O'Rourke, I know, has commented that uh, when she was asked what was her favourite government or her favourite time in government, this is the period she picks, 87 to 89. She said that was a brilliant government populated by talented people who really took the decisions. But it was also a great time beyond that politically because you did get Fine Gael working on this and you did, and it wasn't just a case of things working. There were tough cuts and there were, there were let's not, you know, let's not beat around the bush here. The, the health cuts and that, there was opposition uh, to them uh, and a lot of annoyance about a, a lot of them. But there was overall a sense that finally things were moving and it did bring real energy to 
the economy to people to everything else that that uh, people are seeing now there were other issues going on the introduction of extradition happened at this point and that was another one where Hahi and the old republican view that he had suddenly he had to oversee extraditions Fianna Fáil were opposed to it in opposition now they're kind of saying well we still don't want to know if we can extradite people to the UK they have to oversee it and one of the things Hahi does and becomes a, a he, he keeps going into the party and saying, I'll hear your concerns. Let me know your concerns. Thank you. OK, I'll go away. And then he does the exact opposite of what people have asked him to do. That's what he does on extradition. It's his only way to get it through. Um, and, and he gets through Fianna Fáil continually like that. And it becomes a pattern in this government. But uh, ministers are happy to be going on with their own thing, doing their own thing. And uh, all looks between 87 up to 1988... There is a mood that Fine Gael have been on the back foot, they're under pressure. The Labour Party, well, the Labour Party you have seen in the last time we, we, we looked at Labour, new leader Dick Spring has just about held on to his seat. He's undergone a lot of change in Labour and he is planning for a future, uh, a much different future for Labour, but he also needs time uh, and he needs time now to get this election bedded in to seal his power at the top. A lot of electoral issues. People talking about, you know, he could have lost his seat. He only won it by four votes. But he is now trying to bring some new vision into it. He needs time as well. So everything kind of suits for Fianna Fáil at this point. It was a difficult one for the Progressive Democrats because they'd had this great election, um, but they weren't in government. Uh, and now things were kind of moving on without them uh, and they were struggling. So again, they could back things on the idea of, of taking uh, certain votes in the, the, the national interest. They could back it, but there was no glory in it for them and, and perhaps some of the shine began to wear thin. Now, I would also argue that at this point in the Progressive Democrats, one of the key figures over the years and later years is Pat Cox, who was a, a brilliant uh, politician at European level. He was a, a wonderful networker. He was a very talented guy, um, probably not appreciated enough in, in politics and the ground in, in um, Ireland as much as he was in Europe. But Pat Cox had, um, at this point, he was, he was General Secretary of the Progressive Democrats. And I personally have always felt that the trick was missed here. And I think some blame goes with Pat Cox here uh, in this period because having won those seats, they needed a desperate attempt to build an organisation at this point, And they don't. Uh, the organisation is not there and that's going to haunt them in elections and it's going to haunt them for the rest of their existence. The failure at this point to actually understand how to build uh, an organisation and become something more than just a political party. Because that's how the others were organised. As I said to you, it was in, in previous podcasts when we explained this, it was about, you know, it's a social network as much as anything being in, in a party. The PDs just didn't manage to capitalise on that energy in this point. <clears throat> and that's perhaps an internal weakness. But everybody was sitting around thinking, well, don't really want to face another uh, election, so leave these guys at it. And the economy moves on well to 1988. So you'd think that there should be no real reason um, for, for doubts. One couple of things begin to change, though. Um, one interesting one is that the post of European Commissioner comes up 
in 1988. And Ray McSharry goes to Hockey and says, I want to be European Commissioner. Uh, that's the role I want. That's the role I can. He's he's interested in European politics. He likes the idea of it. There's a, a good, powerful role uh, that you can do massive strategic work at. Might not be as well known back home just how, how important those roles are, but they are particularly important and powerful and influential. And McSharry likes the idea of that role and he wants to go. Now, Hahi doesn't want him to go. And there's a good reason for this. And that although McSharry is very much his own man, has done it, he's number one, already been lauded as a brilliant minister for finance. He has, in in one year, managed to turn around what people couldn't. And, and he is seen as strong, strong-willed, powerful figure. This guy also, McSherry, he was one of the most powerful orators you were ever going to see. If you were in a crowd, as I was uh, at times at rallies and stuff for, for this, this guy was seriously impressive. This was one of the great speakers of, of, of Irish politics uh, over the years. Um, and McSharry, of course, so how he doesn't want him to go because, you know, he's got a good reputation and things are there. You know, Fine Gael kind of trust McSharry to a degree too. They can look at it and go, yeah, he's he's at least responsible. If they don't trust Tahi, and a lot of people don't, uh, then McSharry, they can, they can work with. Social partnership, you know, all of these things, they're, they're, they're on a tightrope, uh, as McSharry himself said. Now to lose that Minister for Finance could be particularly difficult. The other reason Hahi doesn't want him to go at this point, and this is crucial to understanding the 89 election, Hahi is happy, he's, he's finally leading the government maybe that he wants to be, being lauded for some of the things he wanted to be lauded for, which was to be a hero economically and to be socially moving ahead and all of those things that he'd made a mess of, to be quite honest with him, previous times. He's now managing to get a little bit of that. He also trusts McSharry, though. McSharry is his guy. He's his lieutenant. He's his right-hand man at Cabinet. Um... And that's important. It's important when you are trying desperately to hold power. And, you you know, he's had these doubts. Huh? He's still not sure. But he feels, look, you know, if, if I have McSharry there, then things are all right. You know, then then McSharry is going to, to you know, things are, I'll be able to see this through. Now, when McSharry announces that he wants to go, that's going to, to cause him a problem. Uh, and again, just to, to, to pick up Stephen Collins uh, on this quote, at the end of 1988, Hahi's right-hand man in cabinet, Ray McSharry, sought and obtained from the Taoiseach the nomination as Ireland's European Union Commissioner. Hahi did not want him to go, but McSharry was adamant. He was replaced as Minister for Finance by Albert Reynolds, who, although he had always been loyal, had a more distant relationship with his party leader and was not blind to his faults. This change of personnel was to have profound profound consequences over time, unquote. Now, yeah, this begins to show that Hahi is losing somebody that he, he trusts implicitly and he can let be his own man and he feels, you know, look... Um, once Ray is there, Ray will do his own thing, and I let him do his own thing, but I can trust him. Ray has no designs on me or undermining me or challenging me. He'll protect me. Albert Reynolds has been 
Um, one of the key figures in helping Tahi in the past, one of key insiders, if you like, with Tahi. He has, you know, he said in later years in a documentary on Tahi that he had gone to him after the, the last heave, the O'Malley heave, and said, if this happens again, I won't back you. Um, and there was definitely a cooling of the relationship after that period, after McCreevy's uh, push against him. Uh, we saw that in the last podcast changes begin to happen there. Reynolds becomes a lot more distant from Hahi and detached about it. But he is the other big beast, if you like, so with the obvious choice, Hahi can't really um not put him in as finance minister here because he's the guy everybody expects and he's the guy who has the support um that, that others believe he should get the role. <clears throat> so he's probably also one of the guys again who in this tightrope walking that's going on, people feel, you know, Reynolds is the guy who's who's going to be capable of doing similar to McSharry. He's tough, but he's well able to do a deal and he's well able to cut a deal and he understands people, he understands the balancing act. That's going to work. So Reynolds comes in for his... his and, and, and just to go to Albert Reynolds' biography and, and give you an idea of his budget uh, in this that begins to lead into the, the 89 election, he says, quote... My first budget was well received and proved to be effective. Two budgetary factors underpinned the strategy. First and most directly, tax cuts and income transfers released a net £178 million directly into the hands of consumers. Second, and more importantly, by keeping a fairly tight rein on public finances, I gave people confidence that the economy was set to improve further and that employment was secure. It was that feeling of optimism that I anticipated would encourage a domestic consumer spending boom. I believed that by significantly increasing investment in buildings, machinery and plant, we could accelerate the rate of economic expansion, in what would which would in turn further stimulate domestic demand and inward investment. Financing, investment, financing government borrowing was still a huge drain on our economy and only by getting our economy moving could we service the interest on the mountain of debt that burdened us every year. And the way to get things moving had to be through the tax system. Tax relief for manufacturing companies, cutting corporation tax, making our country highly competitive with low tax rates for foreign investors and at the other end of the scale, lower personal taxes, special income tax assistance for more impoverished sector of the population. I introduced wider tax bans and eased the personal tax burden. I cut the standard income tax rate by 3% from 35 to 32%, the top rate by 32% by, by 2%, the first reductions in income tax for 20 years. Overall, I was pleased with the reaction to my first budget, but I also realised it was just a small piece in the overall financial puzzle and the hard task that lay ahead, unquote. Now, <clears throat> again... Uh, that's Albert Reynolds looking at, at his his own uh, view of his first budget. But again, it's important here because what you see is a change in, in Irish politics that the Tala strategy has allowed happen, that the, the, the partnership approach has allowed happen. The cuts come in, they're hard, they're heavy. Now, what Reynolds is actually talking about there is the stimulus. Now, you remember we heard all about this in 77, how we're going to pump prime the economy. But stimulus is all about timing. And 77 was not the time to do that. Now, these guys are working with the economists. They're working with the, the, the sensible approach to it. They've cut and grappled with the spending. They have that. They still have this mountain of debt. 
But now, now they start to introduce these little stimulus packages within us. Reynolds actually becomes a minister who cuts taxes more than any minister in, in, in history. Uh, he slashes the tax rates, allowing people to kind of feel now that, yes, the economy's improving. Government's got a handle on things. We have general political consensus. Trade unions seem happy. Uh, everybody's believing the country is moving forward. So people are willing to spend when you give them the tax cuts. And it actually starts something in the economy. It's a, it's a perfectly timed stimulus now that does begin to lift the economy. So you can sense here that there is a, a, a drive behind it. This is a, for the first time in a long time, there's optimism about the Irish economy, about the, the country, even with the backdrop of all of the cuts that are going on. Um, and, and those cuts are, are, are having a very negative effect on individuals, particularly in the area of health. You know, you, you talk, this is when, and one of the problems that this gives us, of course, is that by cutting so much, the health service, for instance, gets cut. And it's topical nowadays to talk about this thing. It's where we start seeing the waiting lists come in, the trolleys go up. In order to save the public finances and get the economy moving, things like health have to be cut. But we are going to be decades behind in something like health forevermore after this because we cut it so drastically uh, and the pain inflicted on the service was so much. Um, and again, it points to the fact that it should never have got to that point because they this kind of action should have been taken with spending cuts earlier and they wouldn't have had to be as severe. At this point, it's left late, but they finally done it. But it's going to leave long term problems in things and areas like health and public services because we're going to be way behind for years because we're now completely hollowing them out. Um, there's no other option to save money, but they have to and it has to be less severe. So um, while people are noticing um, trolleys going up, waiting lists going up in hospitals, all of those things affecting people, there's still... Uh, an optimism about it and that's going to get reflected in the opinion polls because now you have Fianna Fáil again looking at opinion polls where they're beginning to say look we're, we're pushing over 50% in some of these opinion polls Fianna Fáil is incredibly popular again easy overall majority um, looks to be on the cards because people actually respecting the fact that the economy seems to be going well <clears throat> Fine Gael struggling to sell the idea of it's their help in the Tala strategy. It's their, their work that, that has, has made it all possible. That's not something they're finding easy to sell to the public at this point. But in case we think that everything's rosy in the garden as well and that this is just an inspirational great government and that it might like to look back and be seen uh, and, and, and sometimes this government is viewed with those rose-tinted glasses by everybody. You know, Fine Gael maybe will look back and say this is a period people should have rewarded Fine Gael for for uh, their role in it and didn't Fianna Fáil, as we say, people like Mary Rourke will look back and say this is the best government uh, that they were part of. And it sometimes is this 87 to 89 period seen um, as, as one of those where, I suppose having come from so many bleak governments, it can be viewed as having been particularly strong and and beginning to shift an Ireland that was beginning to shift into a new very modern era um 
And of course, one of the beneficiaries actually of all of that optimism, that change, that youthful approach, the economy moving, bit of money coming in, weirdly enough, is going to be the Labour Party, as we're going to see in, in, in future podcasts as we look back forward in some of the elections. Um, but what definitely happens here at this point is you know, you you get a sense that they were handling it and they were good personnel. But it's important to remember, not everything can be ignored because there were some things going on in this government that still had those old hallmarks, um, that were 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 beginning. And this is, it's not um huge at this point but it's the first time you begin to see things like um what will become massive in politics is the beef tribunal now at this point um charles hockey is friends for instance with larry goodman now not going into all the details of it but you know at this point questions start being asked about how the goodman companies are being run um, and questions start to be asked about um, favouritism towards government, particularly by Des O'Malley. Not going to particularly go into it now because it becomes much more important in future elections where we're going to have to look at what actually happened there. But it's important to remember that there were those accusations beginning to come to the fore. Um, there were also accusations about other things. One of the interesting things we touched on at the end of the last podcast was how how he had been determined to make Ray Burke the Minister for Industry and Commerce. Um, and it only was forced into changing his mind by the fact that Albert Reynolds wanted that post and said he wouldn't serve at all unless he was given that post, um, forcing Hahi to um, change tack. Um, and Burke has become, you know, for a guy that didn't always support Hahi in the early days, he's now become... Uh, a really close aide of Hahi's. He's become the guy who's first out of the blocks on the media to talk about things. Uh, and and there are some interesting stories beginning to develop there too. Um, because for the first time, people are beginning to look at money in politics and money in, in government. Um, one of the things that, that happens here is covered by, by Stephen Collins uh, on this when he writes, um, quote, Another development that drew the fire of the opposition was the decision by the Minister for Energy and Communications, Ray Burke, to establish the Independent Radio and Television Commission, IRTC, to oversee the establishment of commercial radio and television. A strange feature of politics during this period was that Burke took communications portfolio with him through three departments, from energy to industry and commerce and then on to justice. Some of the opposition concern related to simply to left-wing opposition to ending the state monopoly on broadcasting, but there were other deeper worries about the way the licenses were dealt with. When the IRTC was set up in 1988, the government appointed as a chairman a retired Supreme Court judge, Seamus Henshey. In 1988, the IRTC, under Henshey's direction, handed out a number of radio licenses, mainly for new local radio stations. Its most controversial decision was the allocation of the National Commercial Radio Licence to Century Consortium, headed by a well-known Fianna Fáil supporter and concert promoter, Oliver Barry. It emerged over a decade later that Barry paid a donation of 35000 to Ray Burke during the 1989 election campaign, which followed shortly after Century went on air. 
Rumours about that donation circulated for years before being confirmed by the Flood Tribunal in January 2000. The tribunal also confirmed that Hahi's son-in-law, John Mulhern, was a major shareholder in Century. Ironically, the granting of the licence to Century resulted in a financial disaster for Barry and his partners, who lost a lot of money on an ill-fated national station before it eventually closed down. Unquote. Now, it's important that we, we, we touch on those things and don't ignore them, because as I say, it can be easy to look back with rose-tinted glasses on this government and say, you know, it was great, and the, the great policy measures on a strategic level, and as we say, Hahi was... Um, you know, maybe at the at his best or seemed to be at his best in this period, um, but a lot of problems were going on. We're going to face a lot of these. I'm going to have to talk about a lot of these in future podcasts. But here's the germ of where it comes from. You're starting to see a number of problems with financial donations. Uh, that are going to suddenly start following politics and following Fianna Fáil in particular, although other parties are also embroiled in it at times, particularly Fianna Fáil, main party of government at this point. Uh, and we see, now there's also an important point here for the 1989 election, because as we're coming, you're looking at this and we're thinking things are going quite well, so why would there be any issues? Now, just on this thing of, of money and donations, it's important also to look at that had these series of elections that we've looked at in the early 80s, a lot of people were struggling. We talked about how there was great discipline within the parties, particularly for Fine Gael. Politics is beginning to change, though, again, and, and some of that discipline is breaking down a little bit uh, within us. And when it comes to money, financing parties and all, I, just an interesting piece by Gareth Fitzgerald that, that I think is, is important to just put in context here. Um, uh, and I'm going to quote from that here, quote, after 1987, discipline seems to have broken down in both main parties. Increasingly, party campaigns at constituency level were paralleled by personal campaigns for which an increasing number of candidates sought financial support and substantial sums channeled through individuals to the Fianna Fáil party sometimes failed to reach their intended destination. In the past, individual candidates sometimes had to provide part of the finance for party campaigns in their constituencies, a practice I sought to eliminate in Fine Gael because it could militate against people of slender means standing for election. But in this recent period, our political system eventually reached the stage where elections actually became a potential source of personal profit for a small handful of politicians willing effectively to embezzle party funds and powerful enough to prevent this abuse being exposed. Revelations about these malpractices and suspicions that government decisions might have been influenced by payments to party or to individual politicians ultimately gave rise to deep political concern about the influence of business on politics. But the reaction of the party system to these concerns was less than wholehearted. The Progressive Democrats were the first to resist the idea of substituting private party funding by public funding, and Fianna Fáil has remained reluctant to ban business funding of politics, although willing to limit the amounts permitted to be paid. The truth is that private, and in particular business funding, was always a dubious way to finance parties or elections. We deluded ourselves into thinking that safeguards could protect us against abuses of the system. We now know that we were wrong in that belief. The political parties should now have the wit to respond to deep public concern on this score. This is 
at the very least that needs to be done in an effort to restore some measure of confidence in our political system. It is true, of course, that only a very small number of politicians have abused their trust. But the vast majority of honest politicians should have a good sense to realise that all of them are suffering from the misdeeds of that few and there is a need to take effective action to recover lost ground, unquote. That's from Gareth Fitzgerald. I think it's just an important and, and strong point. It puts in context a backdrop that because <clears throat> a lot of problems we're going to see do stem from this and the accusations of financial malpractice. And what you're going to see continually is here, as, as Fitzgerald points out there, not every politician is on the take here. In fact, the vast majority are not. But there are some who are profiting out of all of this and profiting out of their profile and their position. And because of that, everybody's going to take some blame here. And some people are going to be accused of things. Some people are accused wrongly. Some people are going to be accused of things that were slightly wrong. And then people are going to be accused of things that were terribly wrong. All of those kind of things are going to kick in. But what politicians don't realise here is that allowing a few corrupt the system so badly reflects badly on everybody. And you're going to see a mass. Nobody knows who to trust after a while in this system. Uh, and these financial issues really are kicking off for, for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael now uh, as they begin to look at Because Fine Gael also have to do a lot of fundraising. So do all the other parties. Where do you get that money from? How do you get it? And all of that is important because it gives context to what begins to happen when we come to 1989. You see, there's a school of thought that says... The 1989 election, because if if all of you, if you take all of what I've just said to you and, and you've got to appreciate that that's a view. Now, you could have, there's loads of stuff I'm saying there and, and people be saying to you, oh, well, I disagree with this element and that element of it. Now, this is the perception of this. This is a government that's working well. It's why Fianna Fáil are so popular at the moment uh, in the polls. Uh, in in this moment in time and you need to capture that mood that essence that feeling that people had at how things were going along with the fact that the other parties are in a bit of disarray all of those things combined but why is it then we end up in an election in 1989 when just when you're beginning to get things going why not let it settle in and and there is this theory because they because the election kind of comes out of nowhere there is a theory that the 1989 election was kind of caused by something else, uh, that there was another reason uh, behind it. And, and that theory comes down to um, the idea of uh, donations and the need for money. Um, now, I'm not saying that is, nobody knows if that's it, but it was a kind of inexplicable decision in, in 89 that leads to an election and some have put forward quite strongly the idea that some within Fianna Fáil needed uh, let's say some some funds and that by having an election that was the best way to get money into uh, your accounts and that this money was money people would donate to Fianna Fáil, say, for instance, to pick, pick Fianna Fáil, because they are the ones at, at play here. Um, people would donate money to Fianna Fáil. The money would never make it to Fianna Fáil. It would be quietly pocketed. Um, there were a number of uh, people um, from this period and from this election where we begin to see those accusations hanging over them. 
<clears throat> so I think it's worth keeping that in mind and we will be, be returned to it, but it's an important context point because all seemed to have been going well. All seemed to be well in the government. Then all of a sudden, uh, things change just on a whim. The way this worked with the, the TALA strategy, this wasn't like some people be familiar in recent times, the idea of confidence and supply, we are back at the confidence motions and you, that was slightly less um, strict than, than that. It, they had agreement, they were on the, the big, they were on confidence issues, they were had that, that, but they were keen to inflict defeats on the government on small issues. Uh, private members' bills offered that opportunity. And on certain things, they would come in and then they'd say, well, we want a bit more money for this and that and, you know, small things. Now, it is important again to remember that he was still a tetchy character at best, so so we do have to allow for that. He didn't like even these small irritations of, of dictation towards him. Um, but they certainly were happening uh, across the, 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 the political um, arena at this point because the opposition could force Fianna Fáil into doing certain things. But generally, nothing major. Um, and then we get this scene where Hahi goes on a trip to Japan. He comes back uh, and there's yet another one of these which happen fairly regularly at this point so you've got to remember this is not out of the blue there's a, a, a private member's motion to increase the, the, the funding available for haemophiliacs um, who have, have uh, you know suffered um, by, by you know problems in the state process and you know they were saying okay there's compensation fund there um, for them they want to increase it Nothing major. Uh, and all of a sudden, oh, he comes back from Japan and decides, this is the issue. I've had enough. Um, now, it seems to be, and it takes everybody by surprise, of why he would have this terrible fit of temper that says, why why at this moment, why at that point do you go, I've had enough, uh, I'm out. Um, and it, it bamboozles a lot of people. Um just to, to turn to Noel Whelan's account of this, uh, quote, As a minority government, Fianna Fáil had lost a number of private members' motions, but these did not constitute a no-confidence vote. So there was no danger to the government's survival. It is still not clear what prompted Hahi to suddenly raise the stakes on a motion concerning haemophiliacs. One school of thought is that he had made his election threat in a fit of pique after returning from a successful trip abroad to discover that the government was facing an embarrassing dull defeat. Another viewpoint is that Hahi wanted to take advantage of the opinion polls which were running in his and Fianna Fáil's favour and that he wished to cash in electorally in the hope of finally securing an absolute majority. Unquote. So that's it. He, he, he comes back from Japan and, and, and then people are saying like, okay, <clears throat> Maybe it's the polls, because the polls are massive. They're, they're, Fianna Fáil's over 50% in them here. They're, they're incredibly popular. So maybe how he returns to form. Maybe it's just simply that's the case. He returns to form, looks at the polls and goes, I want the overall majority. That's what I want. Um, and, and, you know, may, maybe that's as simple as it was. But Stephen Collins picks it up uh, and says, quote, 
uh, uh, sorry, it just Stephen Collins picks it up here. This is where his account of, of how he goes in to do an interview coming back from, from Japan. So, quote, instead of beginning the interview with the expected questions about the Japanese trip, the reporter asked Hahi for his response to an impending dull defeat. After the interview, the Taoiseach appeared overcome by rage. He made a quick visit to his concealee home near the airport where he consulted a few friends and then insisted on going into Leinster House. He had just completed an arduous 16-hour journey from the other side of the earth and there was no need for him to be in the dole as he was paired with the Fine Gael leader Alan Jukes. On his arrival in government buildings, the Taoiseach summoned the available ministers and subjected them to a tongue-lashing for allowing the situation in the dole to develop as it did. At the informal cabinet meeting which ensued, Hahi strongly expressed the view that he would not tolerate a defeat and he would call a general election if the government was beaten. Most of his ministers were shocked. They saw no need for such an extreme response to what was only a political embarrassment and not a political crisis. Unquote. Hahi's come back. This guy's come back from the far side of the world, 16 hours on a plane. This was going to be... You know, this there was no need, no need to have to go into the dole, take your time, you know, might lose this, we lose a lot of them. Yeah, they're embarrassing and people give us a little bit of flack. And suddenly he's fuming about this. And you think this, this isn't a guy in the right place to make this decision anyway. You're not you're not thinking at your clearest. <clears throat> but he calls them all in, and this is how he of old he is now saying, I'm the boss. And you, Shower, have allowed this happen while I was in Japan. And, you know, now I'm going to lose a vote and I'm fed up losing these votes. You guys, you're at fault. I'm going to call an election if this happens. And and it's a fit of absolute rage um, that I think stuns everybody. Because all the ministers are sitting around going, what, what's gone into them? Like, this happens all the time. We can afford this. This isn't actually damaging ourselves, our electoral abilities or, or, or anything else. But he is now determined uh, and he wants to to have uh, have his moment in front of them all. But there's a lot of people trying to advise against us. Uh, go to, to Noel Whelan. Uh, quote, most of the government were against an election, but Hahi, egged on by Ray Burke and Porrick Flynn, decided to go to the country. Revelations in more recent times from Flood and later Matten Tribunal and the Moriarty Tribunal showed that Flynn, Burke and Hahi collected substantial amounts of money in donations during that election campaign and that some of these appear to have been used for their own ends, unquote. And there you have that other theory. You know, yes, maybe he was annoyed. Yes, maybe it was that moment. But maybe there was some other pressures there too. Because nearly everybody says, don't go for an election now. Things are, are, are fine. You know, we're, we're actually building something good here. This isn't the moment. And he goes for it. And, and everybody's shocked. With the only exceptions really here being Flynn and Burke, who equally are determined to tell him, Go for the election. Now, Flynn always maintains strongly here that it was about the opinion polls for him. They're over 50%. We need the majority. We need to be rid of all these silly little setbacks. Now is the time. Get the majority and imagine what we'll do then. Uh, but certainly Flynn and Burke 
are the ones pushing him for the election. Um, others are, are, are opposed. Most importantly, I think, in terms of where you're looking at economically, who does a Taoiseach look to? Their Minister for Finance. The Minister for Finance, in this case, is not giving him much backing on this. Uh, again, quote from Noel Whelan, quote, Albert Reynolds made a determined effort to talk Cahi out of what he thought was a disastrous move for Fianna Fáil's prospects. As a former uh, whip, Bertie Ahern believed a minority government had to expect to lose a few votes along the way. He too tried to persuade Hahi not to go to the country. Ahern gives an illuminating account of the crisis meeting of the government convened after its defeat and the private member's motion. Now quoting from Bertie Ahern. Albert Reynolds was against an early election. He knew the economy was improving and thought we should wait. Others were more bullish. Porrick Flynn was his usual loud self and demanding that the party take advantage of the good poll numbers. Ray Burke argued the same. That seemed short-sighted to me. Everyone knows that you can't rely on opinion polls once a campaign starts, and I knew there was no appetite in the country for an election. Though this was certainly the case on the doorstep in Dublin Central. If people are not up for an election, they usually punish the ones who brought it about. That was why, later on, I always took my governments to their full term. Do what you're elected to do, then ask the people to put you back in. I think that in the end, Hahi just found it a personal affront to his dignity that he had to rely on the goodwill of the opposition to keep him in as Taoiseach. In 1989, he read the polls, thought he had a chance for the elusive overall majority and went for it, unquote. Yeah, you know, it, it is it is just so surprising. Um, You know, maybe how he's been keeping a lid on his old self and, and letting this government just get on with things and seems to be reformed. Maybe he wasn't. Um, But no matter what way you look at it, Hahi has decided at this point to reaffirm his authority in the party and say he's determined for the election and he has certain support. But when you have some of your key figures um, telling you this isn't right, don't do it over something so small. Remember, this isn't even a crisis. This is an everyday event almost for them. It's hard to understand what drove that, even with very tempting opinion polls um, out there. So Hahi decides that he is not willing to wait. He is not willing to have any truck with what people are saying uh, 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 in terms of telling him not to go for it. And he pulls the plug on the government and goes for the election. Um, and of course, that's what brings us election 89. And it would now comes out of nowhere unexpected seems to be in a fit of peak i mean i i i uh, on, on twitter had liam cattle uh said uh to me he said i was in the dull press gallery watching him as he flung his toys from the pram at around 8 30 p.m and we led the nine o'clock news with the story you know that's just the way it's just people were actually standing there watching oh, what what's just happened you know and and all of a sudden that's it we're off we're we're, we're in an election um and just to, what, how does a game go then? Well, once you get into it, of course, we begin to notice that a lot of cuts and a lot of things have actually hit with people. Stephen Collins again, quote, 
In the campaign itself, the opposition parties, particularly Labour and the Workers' Party, hounded Fianna Fáil on the health cuts, which quickly became the dominant issue of the campaign, while the economic achievements of the previous two and a quarter years were pushed into the background. The delay in calling the election also gave Fine Gael and the Progressive Democrats an opportunity to negotiate a pact to put an alternative government before the people. The deal was announced two days after the election was called, but as things turned out, it failed to capture the public imagination. It did, however, unsettle Fianna Fáil and prevented the two opposition parties attacking each other during the campaign. Instead, they joined in a systematic assault on the government along with the left-wing parties. This assault from all sides began to eat into the government's lead in the opinion polls. As had happened in almost every election since polling began in 1977, Fianna Fáil lost support as the campaign progressed." Now, here you go. Every election we've seen this uh, so far that we've talked about. You've heard me say this time and again. Over 50% on the polls, massive lead. Looks like they can easily get the election. They could lose 6 7 8% and still get a majority. And then all of a sudden, as the campaign progresses, Fianna Fáil starts to dip and starts to fall back in the election. Um. And that's a worrying trend for them, but it's absolutely um it's 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 what drives uh the election and drives the opposition. Now you can see Fine Gael, uh do this uh, deal with progressive Democrats doesn't really get much uh, attention really in the scheme of things because um it it, it public as Stephen Collins says, it doesn't capture the public's imagination. There is an interesting thing, though, here, and it's a, one of these sideshows within the election here, because the Progressive Democrats have a strong number of, of, of seats going into this. They've now been caught. Fine Gael are caught. Fine Gael know, as big parties do, we need to peg Fianna Fáil back. And big parties look at small parties and they say, you know, you guys need to get in with us and we need to take these guys out. And they're right. If you go, if you're a small party and you go with us and you have this arrangement with us, it means you're not attacking us. We're not attacking you. Therefore, we'll take out the other big party, namely Fianna Fáil in this case. So it works. These kind of arrangements work. But as as parties will discover, small parties will see this in future elections. That works insofar as it helps one big party take out the other big party. And if that's your aim to get that other big party out of government, then it's great. However, what it doesn't work for is the smaller party because the smaller party gives up in the, uh, in the, in the effort to stop the attacks between them. They give up their individual uh, approach. They give up their identity and they become just a lighter version of the bigger party they're sidling up with during the election. And therefore, their support tends to evaporate away. PDs are going to suffer a little bit from that too. They're going to become the also run here. They're going to help damage Fianna Fáil for sure because they've, but they're not going to be seen as individual, different, all those things were claimed and now they're just kind of going to be almost a sidekick of Fianna Gael. So as a strategy, it works in damaging Fianna Fáil, but not in advancing the Progressive Democrats in any way, shape or form. Although Fianna Gael would be quite happy with it. Um, but also, in, in as Noel Whelan says, and he says, uh, quote, Fianna Fáil's high level of support began to melt away as the campaign progressed. Some commentators argued that Hahi had forced an unnecessary election so he could escape from the grip of the opposition, who were making him pursue responsible policies. The opposition also relentlessly attacked the shortcomings in the health service. Unquote. Now, 
here's the issues we begin to see in 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 89 <clears throat> uh health becomes one of the the dominant ones um there's also other issues that come out of it uh smaller ones army wives uh become a a big thing at this point um and and push uh quite hard on on the streets about pay and pay because the armies couldn't um strike and therefore you had the army wives pushing for a uh, fairer treatment uh, for their husbands uh, they form if you like a union of sorts and that becomes an issue here too where it becomes uh, and that's where you see that we're now beginning to have a kickback for all these public service cuts in 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 so many ways the army wives become a thing one freakish little issue that comes out uh, there too is something called rod licenses because uh, fishing uh they they introduce a, a a license in order to fish and uh, you 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 it's called a rod license and and this tends to get in certain communities in certain places huge opposition to it and that becomes uh, a localized electoral issue too where people are saying rod licenses don't want them don't like them these are the kind of unpredictable things that kick off during a campaign and and then start to, it all starts to get away from you and that's certainly what happened for you in a fall here on the health service which is probably the really big one they're kind of snookered they're kind of getting an awful lot of pressure from all sides so much so that they're trying to defend us and then they're saying really crazy things john mcconnell says at one point you know look trolley is actually a bed it's just got wheels on us it's not that it's not a bed and they're trying to defend the indefensible here because the likes of health has has suffered hugely under the cut and Hahi then goes back and he says um, that he decides to admit that there were problems. Uh, again, quoting from Noel, Heelan, uh, Noel Whelan here, quote, There were indeed real problems in the health service, but before the election campaign, Hahi said he was personally wasn't aware of the extent of the problems and difficulties and hardships that it was causing. This was an extraordinary admission and was milked to the full by the opposition who insisted that Fianna Fáil was either out of touch or just didn't care about the concerns of ordinary people, unquote. You know, I, coming out, feeling under pressure all of a sudden of these health cuts, you know, and then going to, okay, okay, suddenly people are talking about the cuts and are talking about so maybe they're not all and and you know you can expect that because there had been this mood we're all behind us and the cuts are terrible but you know we get on with us and there's optimism in the country but once you call the election people focus on the issues that are for them and you know what they begin to lose sight of that big strategic vision that the government are telling them about we're all going to a better place by polling it that's fine until you press the button on the election you'll see that pattern time and time again in elections People can give you good poll numbers. They can back you and support you and say you're doing a great thing overall for the country until you push the button on the election. At that point, everything changes and people go back to what have you actually done? How have you affected me? And what are the exact things you're doing for me now in this election? And that's why time and time again, Parties, politicians, leaders who are seduced by the idea that they're doing some wonderful, great, high-level, visionary, strategic thing and getting great poll numbers for it, they're seduced by that into thinking that will translate in the election and nearly every time it evaporates in the election because you're not actually doing the things that they're thinking about when the election is called. And it always changes. A strong lesson there. 
but a lesson that it's ignore, ignored time and time again and how he falls victim to it here. Uh, but he makes this extraordinary thing then where he starts to say, well, I didn't realise the cuts were that bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's just crazy. It's, it's again, it's attempting to get round and out of the problem before uh, they... they before actually dealing with it and saying, you know, you know what, any old words, I find a form of words uh, that will get us out of it. So they go to the election um, and, and I'll let Stephen Collins pick up what, what happens here. The turnout, uh, quote, the turnout on 15 June was one of the lowest turnouts of any recent general election, with just 68.5% of voters going to the polls. When they came in the following day, the results proved a bitter blow for Fianna Fáil. The party ended up with just 44% of the vote and dropped four seats in the process from 81 to 77. There was a feeling of devastation in the party, not just because of the losses, but because the election was unnecessary. Of all the mistakes Hahi has made, this one has to be the biggest, said one minister privately on the night at the count. Fine Gael improved only marginally from 27 to 29%, gaining four seats. The PDs suffered badly, dropping from 14 seats to six, losing some of its brightest stars, including McDowell, Geraldine Kennedy, Anne Colley, Pat O'Malley and Martin Cullum, and the party seemed headed for oblivion. Ray Burke, smarting from his own party's failure to win a majority, said bitterly, it couldn't happen to a nicer bunch of people. Both Labour and the Workers' Party gained votes and seats by eating into working-class Fianna Fáil support, but it was hardly the breakthrough that for the left that had been predicted, unquote. So, <clears throat> you end up with this situation, and, and look, again, let's go back to some, some personal memories and things on, on that that people have of this, because this election was, 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 it came out of nowhere, and then Fianna Fáil again see this lead, it was crushing for Fianna Fáil. And again, I remember this election myself and I remember just how crushing it was. You know, we'd had 81 then end up with 77. Not a massive, you know, collapse or anything. But where did it go? And how did it go wrong? And how did all of this, you know, thinking that we were going to get over the line here for, for grassroots supporters, the work that had gone in here, the timing, the effort... It was an unnecessary election, but they'd turned out, they'd worked hard for it. Now, humble pie, now what are you going to do? Now you don't even have anything like a working majority in government. Now we've just pretty much made fools of ourselves uh, in, in, in the public eye. You're going to have the commentators laughing at this. You're going to have people saying, you know, look, typical Fianna Fáil, mucked it up. It was a really tough time. Fianna Fáil are smarting badly from it. Um, they really do suffer uh, at a grassroots level from it. Fianna Gael, um, on the other hand, now they they haven't capitalised. So if Fianna Fáil was weak, it's not like if Fianna Gael have managed to, to, to capitalise. What they have done, though, is increase seats. And, and that's allowed it. And they have managed to ensure the Fianna Fáil are not on the verge of that majority and what Jukes now has is the ability to say you know look that threat of that Fianna Fáil majority coming from all this that they were getting all the credit for the the, the cuts the cuts and the, the the financial rectitude that was there that's not happening they're not going to get the reward for it so we're we're kind of okay we can start to chart a course now for Fine Gael. We've also seen off that other challenge on our right from the PDs who who now the PDs, well 
this is where they've been found out as to not really having that strong organization a lot of bright stars but a lot of bright stars without a real organizational input on the ground that got kind of bullied a bit during this election by the lack of preparedness of it for many and the fact that it became about again some some really big issues that they weren't at the table for uh they lose some of their their big names they're now down to six seats they're now down to this also ran status within it they're also being you know it's an increase here uh for the labor party who come back in again it wasn't that it was labor come back to 16 seats i mean what's important for for labor here is that they've undergone some tough times they've undergone some some big challenges in it but Dick Spring is now probably more in control and saying, look, we're, we're still able to gain seats. We're still able to see. And you know what? At least we don't have the PDs there as the half party anymore. They they look to have collapsed now. Uh, so we can continue. Um, yeah, Spring is determined. He's not interested in government because um, he needs time still with Labour to, to forge something, forge a, a career. And he doesn't want to be part of all these cuts uh, that have been talked about. It's not where their parties come from. It's going to hurt some of their core base, particularly in the public sector. So they're not really interested in, 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 in taking up government at this point. So that leaves a, a, a real mess when you look around. And now everybody's wondering, well, what the hell are you going to do with this? Um. And that's why 1989 is important, because it changes, not just because of the result, because the election, because of unnecessary, but because the aftermath of it creates just as big of a problem. And that's when something <clears throat> unthinkable comes out of the aftermath of, of 1989, um, because it's the first time that we're going to see Fianna Fáil beginning to turn to the idea of possibly having a coalition government um and i think that is one of the ones that that probably is one of the the biggest things to actually kick off uh out of out of the 1989 election now i did ask some people in it you know what was your memories of it and and just to say you know i had, I had uh carol on on twitter said she did my leaving cert that year and was only interested in partying thankfully i've matured also uh some wall was knocked down in europe uh so I think there's an important point there too, though, because, <clears throat> you know, we've got to put this in context too, that, that the world was moving on and, and that's partially why Fianna Fáil start coming to decisions because there was a sense, uh, again, in the same way 77 had brought a new generation of people, there is another generation and a more maturing of a generations going on here. Ireland is again in a cycle of change. The world is in a cycle of change. Berlin Wall comes down in that year. Things are beginning to look forward very differently uh, globally. This idea of being out of government at this point is not attractive to, to anybody. Um, and that's where, you know, the, 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 I suppose, people most importantly have to have to look at how Fianna Fáil changed its, its, its attitude to the coalition because of that, because they wanted to be in there. How he wanted to be in there. This was a an important time in in uh, our in world politics and how he saw himself there. He doesn't want to lose out now. And effectively, there's no way of forming a government or any kind of minority at this point. I also had uh, Patrick Givens on on Twitter who said. Um, 
in terms of the um memories of the the election he said breaking the monolith ff conceding they'd have to embrace coalition for the first time morgan quim reportedly quoting the old prayer give me the serenity etc in unfavorable reaction to it pds getting ministries for half its tds the rod license war the army wives they were all the ones that that uh, patrick remembered marie coleman said that she remembered doing her junior cert at this time she said if i recall correctly henry abbott lost out in longford westmead to paul mcgrath uh, and this was the one where army wives and fishing rod licenses were issues and they were particularly in in constituencies like that um where you had army bases and you had a lot of fishing <laughs> they they certainly kicked off and yes Fianna Fáil lost a, a, a the third seat they'd got there that was one of their losses very tight seat to have won three from four and to be expecting to do it again was a massive ask um you know, uh, Joe Ryan in Wexford said, uh, I still recall CJH coming back from the Orient and throwing his toys out of the pram and calling an election because the Dole backed uh, a Labour motion to allocate money and tackling HIV AIDS. God knows what he'd think of the cost of the coronavirus. Uh, and Joe's point is the fact there that, um, you know, I mean, you're talking about a couple of hundred thousand uh, that was, was being allocated here when CJH threw the toys out of the pram. And that's what it was. But of course, it wasn't that issue. But yeah, when you look at the modern coronavirus um, costs, what would happen? Um, it was it was also a time I, I, I got interesting to find out from certain people like Joan Byrne, who uh, contacted me because she ran during that election in Ballymun. She said oh, the times were different to a great tight community with great responses to a variety of issues at the time. Community development structures have been systematically dismantled across the island since then, though. And Joan ran in that election uh, and therefore has, of course, you're going to have special memories uh, of it as well. Uh, Catherine Fox said she remembered it well lots of internal division in the FF campaign last minute leaflet dropped by the O'Rourke team in an Abbott area the night before an election the election count was in Longford if I remember correctly and the rod license issue was solved very quickly afterwards and again that's what they do in politics they they solve the issue sometimes after the election <clears throat> uh, Peter from Sligo said it was the first election he was uh, old enough to vote in um, and Sinead Crowley, of course, of, of RTE, said to me that she was in fifth year in school and uh, stood in a mock election for the PDs. One thing I'm going to point to you at this point that you should check out is Alan Kinsella on Twitter. He is His handle is at election lit. That's at election L-I-T, um, where he has put up a great array of the... Uh, literature on that from the 1989 election um, and, and it's well worth seeing so you can see exactly what they were talking about and the issues and the materials there it's it's really fascinating he's a great um, <clears throat> an absolutely great amount of it uh, to watch there and, and it's a real window into the past so I'd advise you to check out his, his Twitter account and see that um, also interesting in that um, Fergal Rourke, who of course is is a son of of Mary O'Rourke, um, at the, also was in touch, and he said to me, um, in it, but he said, uh, that it was, uh, an election where he had canvassed, of course, for his mother Mary in in Ballymahon, which is on the Longford Westmead. It's in Longford, and it's it's a good bit inside Longford now, Fergal. It's near my home home place, 
Um, and Fergal said he was out canvassing in Ballymahan for votes for Mary O'Rourke. He was caught by Noel Hanlon, who told him he was going to uh, string him up from uh, a lamppost, <laughs> as Noel would tend to do when we marked our territory in Longford, we weren't allowed over. Um, there was, of course, I mentioned in the last episode, the Battle of Tang Church, which had happened. Um, but Ballymahan was, was certainly well inside the, the Longford, so I don't know why Fergal was there. But uh, quite rightly, uh, Noel Hamlin took him to task on us. But they're the kind of things that, that happen in elections on the ground. and they're, they're, they're great and they're special memories, I think, for people. But all of that did give that mood that something had to change, though. And someone had to do something now um, because, you know, you needed to have... Uh, a coalition government, but that brought huge shock and, and it brought huge shock to everybody um, that Fianna Fáil would think to change at this. Um, and, 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 you know, James Dorley mentioned that to me. He said it was the first election he could vote in. He still remember being canvassed right up to the door of the polling station with the Euro elections on the same day, which confused a few. Um, think to cost Bell a seat in Leinster and my shock after when CJH did a massive U-turn on coalition uh, was innocent back then, he says. Well, yeah, I, but, it, but it was a massive shock that people didn't see coming that Fianna Fáil were going to suddenly talk about coalition now in the aftermath of this. Um, you know, these were the kind of fallouts around the country people were looking at. Now, I didn't even mention that, you know, of course, Fianna Fáil's slogan for this election was home and away the best team because... Uh, this happened at a time when, of course, football was on the up and it was Ireland matches were going on that summer, World Cup qualifiers, you know, for uh, Italian 90. You know, it was uh, all part of that mood. And, and, of course, the European elections were happened. And that's maybe one thing I should have mentioned, because perhaps part of the temptation for hockey and going for it, along with the poll numbers and all, was also the fact maybe that the European elections were happening. We can just bundle a general election in on that day too. And that became tempting. Um, Pat McAuliffe said to me that Liam Cosgrave Jr. lost out to his Fine Gael running mates Monica Barnes and Sean Barrett and the end of the Cosgrave's dominating Dunleary politics. It was also the first computerised tally, I remember, a revolution at the time. No laptops then, full PC and dot matrix printer. Uh, addendum Cosgrave Jr. was trying to win back the seat he'd lost in 87. He called for him was granted a full recount, bringing us all back for another day with PC and screen and printer. Jonathan Ryan and Pat Smith of FF were the tech wizards of the day. Um, look, you know, it's hard to imagine when we look back at the elections. I mean, you think back to counts and everything else that we didn't have the the technology, the computers, printers, they're only beginning to come in now at, at things, places like count centres and, and we're beginning to see tech such as it was being used at that time. Um, and that was the kind of change you're looking at in 89. But anyway, uh, the result means that we don't have the government that perhaps we probably felt that was going to come out of it. There's certainly no stability in this. Um, so it begins to talk about, you know, can we have an election? Should we have an election uh, or, or, again? And of course, that's off the table pretty quickly. But um, it also means that he has to start talking then to other people and see who is. So he talks, first of all, to uh, Fine Gael and to Alan Jukes. 
Uh, but Jukes is in no mood um, to, to negotiate, really. Uh, he's uh, picked this up with Noel Whelan, who says uh, of Jukes, quote, He made it clear that Fianna Fáil's decision to force an election meant that all bets were off, telling Hahi that if Fianna Fáil wanted Fine Gael's support in forming a government, his party would have to get seven of the 15 ministries and the office of Taoiseach would have to be rotated between the two leaders, unquote. Now, that's the first problem Hahi gets when he comes back in here. This is a mess. It's a stupid election. You shouldn't have done it. Now, come on, what are you going to do? You're even further away from majority now. Well, are we going to continue with the Talis strategy? No. Dukes now has something. He's got the PD's office back. He's got Fianna Fáil out of position where it can get an overall majority. He's going to be able to say, OK, I've got this. I am going to ensure um, that uh, Fianna Fáil uh, now has to suffer a little bit here. So Duke says, no, there's no talent strategy here. But I'll tell you what is on the table if you want. We could go into government with you, but you'll rotate the office of Taoiseach. And, you know, that's the first time we hear this. And, and this is the first real grand coalition begins to be, and, and it seems a natural step after the Tala strategy, but Duke's explaining it clear. Of course, that's never going to happen, and he knows deep down how he's never going to agree to giving Fine Gael, uh, half the power of cabinet and rotating the office of Taoiseach. It would be insane. Could you imagine that how he serves as Taoiseach for two years, and then Charles Hahi steps aside and, and, and then uh, has to go and uh, visit Alan Dukes as, as the Taoiseach? No. No, 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 that's not how he's view of power. He's not going to be able to step down after a year or two and allow Alan Jukes to take over and allow Alan Jukes be in charge uh, of him. No, uh, he's come too far for that to happen. So that's off the table. Labour are off the table. Um, and then what does he look at in his, his, his own party? Well, again, quote Noel Whelan, quote, in Fianna Fáil, the move was strongly against any former coalition. The Ord Corla have voted unanimously against a coalition arrangement on the 2nd of July. Uh, Hahi went on national radio, again ruling out the possibility of Fianna Fáil entering a coalition government. The following day, the Dáil again assembled, but it was no closer to electing a Taoiseach and adjourned until the 6th of July. In the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party, speculation that another election would be called was intense. However, others in the party were coming to the view that if Hahi stepped down, a new leader would not attract the same level of hostility from other parties and might be able to put together a minority government. Unquote. Now, again, uh, we see this time and time again, you know, well, maybe if we got rid of Hahi, the Hahi factor. Uh, but Hahi's not going to let that dwell for long. He knows he's got to move fast. Um talk about another election but it's going to be put to bed really quickly because they can't really afford that or want it at this point they've got to get something here but you know this is the first election the first time after an election where the doll meets and cannot elect a Taoiseach now we're kind of used to that now and coming back and those votes and that happened this is the first time it happens to some people this is some bit of a constitutional issue here you know why can't we elect a Taoiseach this is unheard of that we wouldn't have the ability to elect a Taoiseach it's a sign for a fall of change from being able to get those big numbers but yet the other parties haven't got to a point where they can definitely assemble enough numbers to overcome Fianna Fáil so you're left in this strange strange position <clears throat> and um, that's what brings Hahi to talk to the Progressive Democrats. Progressive Democrats now need something because they're down to six seats. They need desperately to be relevant. Government looks like a decent option. 
even with Charles Hockey. Otherwise, they do risk going on to oblivion. Uh, and, you know what, O'Malley is not as difficult with Hockey now. Not on a personal level, there's still the animosity there, but at least O'Malley believes that there are enough people within Fianna Fáil now who are going to do the right thing by the economy. And he's happy that he can at least talk about that. Um, so to quote here, uh, again from, from Noel Whelan, quote, at about the same time, Hahi met the PDs and agreed to form a coalition subject to a programme for government being agreed. When Pat Cox suggested that Flynn's, Porrick Flynn's remark showed substantial opposition in Fianna Fáil to any coalition arrangement, Hahi brazenly replied, it's all right, I just haven't told them yet, unquote. Now, there you go. There's there's an insight into what we're getting with Hahi right now. He needs the power. He needs to be in it. Because Park Flynn has gone out and said, the party line, which is no coalition, not interested, not interested in the PDs. Now Hahi comes out and he's saying to the PDs when he's talking to Pat Cox and Pat Cox is saying, you know, Flynn has just said, that doesn't sound like you guys are ready to talk. How, how can you be doing a deal here? And you're saying, he's like, don't worry, I haven't told him yet. You know, I'm doing a deal with you. I just haven't told the party yet. I'll get round it. That's how he sees himself. That's how he sees the 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 his approach to it. Um, again, pick up. So what does he do? He goes and he turns to Bertie Ahern. Um, and and again, let Noel Whelan pick this up. Quote: The next day, how he sent out Bertie Ahern, his most popular minister, to sell the deal to Fianna Fáil. Ahern recalled, on the fifth of July, acting on Charlie's instructions, I did a groundbreaking interview on the news at one, saying for the first time that we were prepared to consider a coalition. The negotiations began the following day in the Berkeley Court Hotel. Let us never negotiate out of fear, I said on the way in, quoting Kennedy, but let us never fear to negotiate. Unquote. Um <clears throat> so how he comes out, he's agreed to do a deal with the PDs and he says come on Bertie need you to go out there and sell this one Bertie says okay boss I'll do it does this interview uh and says that we're going to do it and that opens the door for the negotiations to start um interesting Bertie Hearn saying you know quoting quoting uh Kennedy there and saying let us never negotiate out of fear but let us never fear to negotiate considering that you know Fianna Fáil in more modern times is having quite a difficulty negotiating with some political parties. Um, so it, it shows the, the, the change over time. Um, this was a very different party back then. Um, but what's crucial here is they get into negotiations and there's a long way to go here um, before you can actually say a government's going to be formed. Uh, again, just to put it in context, back to Noel Whelan again here, quote, Ahern and Reynolds were the Fianna Fáil negotiators. Their PD counterparts were Cox and Bobby Malloy. The talks were difficult and tense, with Malloy taking a hard line and angering the normally unflappable Ahern. The mood was not helped on the Fianna Fáil side by the fact that Hahi, in his determination to get a deal, was prepared to pull the rug out from under his own negotiators. Quoting Ahern, our annoyance with the PD negotiators was nothing in comparison to the anger we felt at the treatment by our party leader. I had got on very well with Albert during the negotiations. We felt we were making real progress and getting a good deal for Fianna Fáil. That's why we were so aggrieved when it became obvious that Hahi had gone behind our backs in dealing directly with the PD leader, Des O'Malley. Talking to O'Malley was Hahi's prerogative as leader. Failing to tell us was not. Albert and I only learned that Hahi was prepared to concede two cabinet places to the PDs when we heard it on the radio. Both of us were as annoyed as hell, unquote. 
Now, this is, and this is really important in terms of the, the outcome of this election. Hahi needs power. He wants it back. He wants to get something done here. And Hahi is reverting to type most definitely here. I'll do the deal. The, the, the two boys have sent them out. They can go. They get that. Uh, they can negotiate a deal. But I am not. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep the channel open with Des O'Malley, the leaders. That's always happens. That's standard practice. But he's not keeping his negotiators informed of what he's talking about. Um, and this leads to huge animosity at this point. Because, like, let's be honest here. What Charlie has at his disposal in terms of going into this negotiation are probably two what would be probably regarded in politics by, I think, fairly say by all sides in us, two certainly for whatever other faults they had, probably two of the best negotiators uh, and deal makers uh, that have ever been in Irish politics. And he has the two of them in there to do it, and he doesn't let them do it. He completely decides, I've got to do something in the background, and I won't tell them. I don't trust them enough. That's really, really, uh, you know, it, it, it's going to... Get another view on it, because that was Bertie Hearn's view, to look at what Albert Reynolds said of it at the time then. And this, because all of this is important, because it begins to affect where this government's going to go and what's going to happen for future times. Albert Reynolds' quote says, Bertie Hearn and I were appointed to negotiate on behalf of Fianna Fáil, Bobby Malloy and Pat Cox for the PDs. There is no doubt that, unbeknownst to us, how he was taking decisions without any reference to us at all and that the negotiations were we were conducting were being undermined in secret meetings between himself and O'Malley. Negotiations had ground to a halt over the number of PD cabinet seats. They insisted on two. We offered one. Both the Hearn and I went on radio to assert that the PD allocation would be one and one alone, only to learn that on the very same day Hahi had conceded two in his meeting with O'Malley without informing us. At this stage, I was becoming more and more disillusioned with Hahi's overbearing presidential style. I was not the only one. Several other members of the cabinet, all former strong supporters of his leadership, Flynn and Gagan Quinn in particular, were totally opposed to a coalition and angered that we had been forced into an unnecessary election. Unquote. So, Hahi is now putting himself offside with some of the, again, the big beasts of cabinet. And even his loyal lieutenant, Ahern, is saying, hold on, don't do this to me. Don't, don't just send me out. And, and, and you know, one of the problems here, the, this deal is called by Albert Reynolds a temporary little arrangement. And people said it was, the, the, you know, he really disliked the, the, the coalitions, which he did. But it was also this, Hearn and, and Reynolds have been sent out like messenger boys here. And the guys off the other side of the table going, you haven't a clue what's going on. And... Um, in any form of government, this was really going to damage everything going forward around that cabinet table. How he does turn in order to get a deal also to Charlie McCreevy, his other old enemy. But of course, McCreevy is right wing in his thinking and he's got along with a lot of the PDs. So how he is using McCreevy uh, in it. And, and for the first time, Reynolds and McCreevy have words because of this. Um and and you know how they're 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 setting up negotiations in the back channels. Uh again, quote Albert Reynolds on this quote. I realized something was going on between McCreevy and Charlie Hahi when Bertie and I returned unexpectedly from our negotiations at the Berkeley Court Hotel to government buildings, and I saw McCreevy coming out of Hahi's office. He was so startled to see us that I immediately suspected another game was being played out in our absence. 
I was incensed. I remember calling after him, this is a waste of time. But I also recognised it would be a game that would cost Hahi the leadership in the end. It was the moment I lost all faith and made up my mind, enough of Charlie Hahi. Unquote. Now that's that's what is crucial here in the aftermath of 89. You're seeing a couple of big things happen. This election has now forced Fianna Fáil to change tack and now think coalition government is going to happen. But at the same time, the price of that is now going to be Charlie Hyde. Charlie has now offended too many big beasts. A lot of uh, people who are loyal to him are gone or don't have the power there. And now you have the guy who's the Minister for Finance who has to be seen as the next big challenger deciding at that moment, I've had enough. This guy's gone. Um, and and that is, you know, it's it's a crucial, important moment. And and, and understanding where this went, um, Fianna Fáil did not do this easily. They did not agree to it easily. Um, and, and I was sent a piece, I'm going to read it here by Alan Kinsella, because he sent me a, a piece from uh, Rosaline Bowen Long's book uh, on, on Fianna Fáil. And, and he said, you know, the bitterness and incomprehension that a, a coalition deal um, was possible was captured in this. And I think it's a good piece I'm going to read uh, from Rosaline Bowen Long. Quote, The methods used to form a government in the Irish Republic in 1989 reduced Irish politics to the status of an American television soap opera, Dallas. The difference here being there was more than one J.R. It's beyond all comprehension to believe that a splinter group in Irish politics, almost annihilated by the electorate, could emerge with three ministerial posts in coalition, with a major party having 77 seats. It is preposterous that any individual could form a government without giving the full parliamentary party the opportunity to cast their votes on it. When eventually they were informed by Mr. Hahi of the decision he had made, it was their duty to raise the necessary objectives and not support him. They were foolish not to consider the people at home who put them there. These are the people they must come back to in an election situation. Excuses from these parliamentarians won't be accepted. They are now seen as having protected their best, their own interests, but only in the short term. They didn't remember the long term. This coalition government is, to the Fianna Fáil supporters throughout the country, akin to the proverbial red rag to a bull. Since the formation of this government, the dust has settled, but the continuous rumblings of the discontent compared to boiling lava in a volcano that must erupt. Fianna Fáil, a party with a glorious past, has weathered storms before, but no storm ever left the organisation with such a feeling of hopelessness and complete disorientation as this present situation. What will be the end result? Will the party ever rise again to its former glory, or is it now to be seen as the great party of the past? Eamon de Valera would never have considered this coalition, but then Eamon de Valera was not a man for doing deals. When Charlie Hahi was having trouble with the people who formed Club 22, I myself wrote letters to, of support to him. I firmly believed in supporting the leadership and the national interests of the party. Naturally, one could never foresee what has happened now. On this occasion, he totally ignored our pleas not to form this coalition, which now results in us, the grassroots of Fianna Fáil organisation, having lost confidence in him. Seeing the newspaper photographs of Charlie Hahi shaking hands with his old enemies and listening to their words of praise for each other was enough to make any fair-minded person physically sick. The press got it right when describing his old enemies as his new friends and his old friends as new enemies. 
In my frustration, I have written this book. I hope it will relieve the tension experienced by all those who feel as I do. I bear no malice to anyone that I have mentioned. It is written solely to give voice to those who feel totally let down. The book is written in a condensed fashion, but one feels the subject is serious, and especially if to do with politics, it's better to get to the point quickly. Unquote. Um, and that is a captures neatly some of of when she 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 um Rosaline Bowen Longs wrote that piece, the emotion that was going on in Fianna Fáil. Some really felt let down and sold out by Hahi and what he has done here. Uh, and the idea of a coalition government really begins to change things in the Fianna Fáil mindset. And of course, that changing of the mindset in Fianna Fáil is important because everything becomes now about, if you if you have the biggest party now is open to coalition, it's going to change everything about coalition governments. Now you have so many options available for governments, um, so many parties that you could do what works. And it also holds out something that Fine Gael's real way of getting an out, Fianna Fáil out of power was that it could deny Fianna Fáil government because Fianna Fáil was such a big monolith. It was only going in on its own. And that meant you couldn't, majorities are hard to get. So you could get them out every so often. There was a belief if Fianna Fáil is willing to do a coalition, then maybe you'll never get them out, ever. Because now they're capable of always doing a deal with another party. Um and and to to turn to um the Noel Whelan uh, on this again on on it he says quote on the twelfth of July Hahi met O'Malley and the PD negotiators he unilaterally agreed to appoint O'Malley and Malloy to government and that Mary O'Harney would be appointed as Minister for State and the PDs would get three of the Taoiseach's eleven Shannon nominees the Rubicon had been crossed Fianna Fáil for the first time in its history was definitely going to participate in a coalition government. With the deal done, Hahi shook hands with his old nemesis O'Malley and remarked, nobody but myself could have done it. Unquote. And there you have it. Um, that is what the view. Charlie is thinking he has done the amazing and that nobody but him could have got this through. And and in a way, maybe he's right. Maybe Maybe having crossed that Rubicon was not something anyone else could have done. Only perhaps uh, Charles Hahi. Um, but certainly it holds out a couple of interesting prospects. Politics has now changed by this. Fianna Fáil could realistically always be in government because, yeah, sure, maybe they'll fall out with the PDs. Maybe Albert Reynolds is right and it is a temporary little arrangement. Maybe if they go for an election and this is a good government, maybe Fianna Fáil, they're still within touch and distance, you know, good election, good results. They can still get an overall majority. That's still possible. Um, if they don't get the overall majority, well, look at if they're doing coalitions, they could have some of these other small parties that are coming up. There's Green Party there, you know, maybe maybe they could work with Fianna Fáil. Maybe Labour could work with Fianna Fáil. So many options um, that you begin to think now it's not as rosy for Fine Gael as maybe Alan Jukes had hoped. Um, he's now going to struggle um, with the fact that Fianna Fáil are able to form coalitions and that puts them a little bit offside and that's going to make it difficult. Dick Spring has stayed out of government at this side, but he knows too, he's got to make Labour relevant in this and that's going to mean a modernising force. And he starts at this point 
to turn his eyes on something else, a prize that is uh, the absolute domain of Fianna Fáil, which is the presidency. And he begins to look at that as maybe an opportunity for Labour to maybe make its mark in an election as, as its new refounded Labour Party, if you like. Um, and of course, that's all going to have a major impact, but that's where their attention begins to turn. Sinn Féin's still not really making an impact on the scene here, although things are changing there and changing dramatically, particularly as the party grows in, in, in Northern Ireland and its support base. But it's still on the, the outskirts of, of the political game. 1989 gives us that change, that, that absolute dramatic change now of coalition governments for Fianna Fáil and potentially of what might be seen as a stable government. But question marks hang over it. How can these two men, particularly Hahi and O'Malley, actually perform in government? They dislike each other on a personal level. How is that really going to work? Fianna Fáil in general dislikes the PDs. How does that work across the organisation? How does it work when your Minister for Finance says it's a temporary little arrangement? Um, how does it work? Uh, how, how is that trust going to be built when the PDs are already still talking about investigating activities of Fianna Fáil ministers, of Charlie Hahi, his business relationships? How is all that going to pan out? Just how long can these guys stay together is, is the question on everyone's lips. Probably what's going on notice too, though, is that what seems like yet another stroke for Charles Hahi is probably about to prove one of his final ones in the coming years. This is the last general election Charles Hahi is going to fight. And this result is the end for him because it sets in train a series of issues, problems, doubts and events that are going to lead to him uh, having to depart the political scene. Um, and that's where we have to step out of the 1989 election uh, and wait until the following uh, general election, which of course doesn't come until 1992. So thank you for listening again. I hope you have enjoyed this look back into 1989 and all that went with it and all of the change. And of course, next week, we are going to look forward to uh, one of my favourite elections <laughs> um, for, for home personal reasons, but 1992 election. Um, which certainly has a, a very different flavour to it to anything we've seen uh, up to this point. But I hope you're enjoying the series. If you are, please let people know about it. Please do spread the word. Please give us a retweet, uh, a mention out there. It, it all helps and uh, it's great to get good listenership figures as the series has been getting and I'm very grateful to all of you. Once again, I want to thank Car Communications for the use of the Car Communications Library uh, and the uh, books that we are using to reference this. 
uh, we're going to be going straight ahead into uh, a lot of a very different economic pictures uh, with a lot more sources that we're going to have to quote from uh, as we move up through uh, into the early stages of uh, uh, the Irish success story, if you like, of the economy and some of the negatives that we're going to start coming with that as well. Uh, but thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and uh, I hope you're staying safe um enjoying the podcast at a distance from each other but uh hopefully um you 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 get a chance next week to tune in again and in the meantime if you want to contact me or want to have a debate or discussion on it please do uh my twitter handle is at johnny fallon that's at j-o-n-n-y fallon f-a-l-l-o-n and uh, i'd love to hear from you so thanks for now until next week bye bye